Quick programming note, this episode was recorded before the 2022 season, so if you hear anything that sounds like it's off chronologically, that's the reason why. Otherwise, hope you enjoy this one. Thinking Basketball Podcast. Welcome back to an off-season episode. My name is Ben. As many of you know, you may have heard that. Um, <laughs> we're clearly in off-season form already with this introduction. Today, a guest that I've wanted to have on for a while. I feel like I've been following your work for as long as I can remember, and somehow we've never really linked up. Uh, he is the host of a popular basketball podcast himself which it's i mean how about this title i was thinking about this the title of your show just the basketball <laughs> podcast that's it it's pretty easy to remember um from basketball immersion basketball podcast coach chris oliver welcome to the show uh great to be here ben uh, fun to talk to a true professional too uh <laughs> yes, with that introduction yes absolutely no it's great uh can i just say like my wife was the one jen oliver who just said like we looked it up and nobody named their podcast the basketball podcast. So I said no at first because it's just to what you're thinking. It's like, well, that's a little arrogant. Like <laughs> it's the basketball podcast. It's definitive. But then when you look at SEO and you look at all this stuff and stuff, which you and I deal with in our worlds and you go, nobody's named it that. So let's just go with that. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. How long have you been doing that show, by the way? Yeah, it's 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 really just two years, to be honest. I mean, I was doing it a little bit near my last kind of half of my career coaching at the University of Windsor. Uh, again, something my wife really encouraged me to do. She had already run podcasts and been involved with a bunch of podcasts for different companies she worked with. And I just resisted somewhat because it was very public. And when I was still coaching, I didn't feel comfortable you know, doing that. But once I left coaching and devoted full time to this, this landscape that I'm in now, it's absolutely been the best thing, uh, you know, from a business standpoint, but also from a network standpoint and, uh, just sheer enjoyment, you know, you, you love yeah. having these in-depth conversations. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's ironic because I think in real life outside of recording these conversations, they're great to have, but they're really hard to have. And so actually having the platform allows us to it kind of it creates the environment and forces us to go deep on certain topics and be able to explore them in ways that we otherwise couldn't. And I'm I, the irony is not lost on me that now your job is to draw out that private information from so many coaches that you have on your on your show. You know, and and, and people like are are curious about that. And generally, people are willing to talk deeper if you ask the right questions. And I think that's probably what you found on yours. And recently when I was at the BI Academy in Minnesota, Minneapolis, some coaches actually asked me about formulating questions and coming up with these things. And I think a certain amount of all questions come with from a humble place of truly being authentically interested. And I think that's hopefully what comes across from the podcast is that I am generally curious and try not to come in with bias when I ask questions, even though I'm on the record. Like people know that. I'm on the record with my views, but people are still comfortable sharing it with me, even if they're they're you know divergent or different. So I love that aspect of it, and that's really lit me up having done the podcast for so long. Like, there's a lot there's a lot of stuff going on in basketball, and especially at the NBA level. Like, what's front of mind for you in terms of the thing you're most interested in, or the thing you're most curious about? Yeah, great question. Uh, for me, like 
obviously Twitter, I I share plays and no matter what, and I think we've all found this as people that run online businesses in basketball, no matter what I share, people love plays. Like it's the, 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 the most viewed thing I post are plays. And to me, that's not the value of my content. My content is really focused around more how to teach. So particularly something if I'm talking to NBA teams or Division One teams, you know, at the collegiate level, men's and women's right now, so much of the focus is on removing fluff, like just being more efficient. And I think coaches, well, I don't think, I know coaches are more comfortable with this conversation now because the pandemic forced so many of them to remove things that they learned soon after weren't as necessary as they thought. And that mostly translates into, from a collegiate level, too many hours of practice, which just ultimately gets muddled with stuff that doesn't happen in the game. And at the NBA level, they've always been focused on workload management, but even becoming more efficient to try and connect, you know, perception and decisions to what transfers to on court. And uh, the smart organizations are really looking at that. Yeah, I think of this entire topic of organization efficiency, right, as and I've, I've talked to a few teams as well, um, only at the NBA level about this, because in sort of my old day job, my old world, um, I, I didn't necessarily optimize in that, like that wasn't what I focused on. But a lot of my background and a lot of the principles in terms of how we communicate and how we process information and how we learn, they apply in this setting. And what's really interesting to me is you've got multiple sort of stakeholders involved, right? You have coaches and you have players and you have trainers and, and at certain uh, levels you have management. And so you have all these parties trying to figure out how to communicate. And so there's efficiency in communication and then there's efficiency in the process and how all of those things go together and on and on and on. So uh, it is a very interesting um, kind of topic. And just this idea that the pandemic has revealed things about it, as it probably has in so many industries, adds just another layer to moving forward and trying to make everything about basketball in a way more optimized, more efficient for the players, coaches, et cetera, et cetera. Well, and I'd say the other biggest challenge is this media portrayal of what a coach actually does or mm, what an organization yes. actually does. And and I'm really trying to help push that narrative of get the media to understand that the way you portray coaching is not the reality of coaching. You know, it's not a big speech. It's not all these big moments, right? It's all those mundane moments, all that efficiency. And like I would challenge, I mean, you and I probably go back, you know, ages to be able to reflect on say tim ferris coming out with a four-hour work week yeah. and going that's something i desire not for not working i love working but for the efficiency that comes with that that's the mindset for me is like okay okay you as media say i need to be in the office from 8, 5 a.m to midnight or i'm not grinding or i'm not working hard yeah and i say the opposite how about if i get my job to four hours a week and we're still successful. That means we're so efficient. And I love how you connected that with organizational efficiency. Yeah, I mean, even just something like film study, where in the old days, <laughs> you know, not to date myself, but when you've got tape decks, right? And you're like trying to do the old style film editing, you would really, I mean, film film coordinators today still grind hard, but yep. y- you would you would really have to put in a certain amount of error, even data, uh, data crunching, a certain amount of hours to get things done that you can now do very quickly. And of course, the the trap in our society is old old stories about like email. When email came out, people said, oh, this will save you all this time. And then they just figured out how to put more stuff in email. 
so everyone was on their email for nine hours a day. Yeah, and we're still having meetings, for example, that like people could just summarize in, a, in an email as a great example that you just yeah, brought yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. So, and I think that same thing sort of connects to what you're talking about in basketball. And this actually leads to something I've heard you mention on the show before, just in passing, but I think it's a big thing. The idea of a new coach versus sort of like an old coach, the, the model, um, the media, the media portrayal or, or art portrayal is probably for narrative reasons always been the rah-rah speech and, you know, Newt Rockney and things like that. But even just this, this mentality that you've got to be grinding all day. Um, you have to be really intense. You have to ride players really hard. Um, tough love is the only kind of approach for development, things like that. This seems to me to, and I'm being reductive, but it seems to be sort of this old model of coaching. And when you talk about the new model of coaching, of course, a lot of your work and a lot of what you do gets into like neurological development and communication styles and how to adapt to different players in different settings. But that seems to be a, a newer kind of approach. Is that a fair divide do you think that applies at every level like what, what are your thoughts on that yeah i mean i think that's a fair fair commentary and I, I do think the the right narrative is winning the you know the modern coaching style i generally believe is has been very positive for players been very positive for coaches and most coaches are truly aligned that way to a certain extent but it's hard to break old habits as we know and it's hard to be really stoic, even though we know we're better decision makings when we're stoic as coaches. But it's hard sometimes because, again, we know people are watching and we know that their expectation of how we should act doesn't necessarily reflect how we actually coach best. And that kind of still I think there's a struggle. But if, if, if just as a quick summary before we get to that discussion, which I know we'll go to, is generally I would describe modern coaching as it all starts from psychological safety for the player. Mm. And that ties into so many things. It ties into the mental health movement. It ties into just, and, and why not change? Like, to be honest, why should we be changing? Aren't we smarter now? So we should be changing. And that's, that's kind of the evolution of humanity is that we're always going to evolve because we're going to get smarter with what we do. Either we've studied it more or we've thought about it more or we have more experiential knowledge from this. And uh, that's been really fun to get into those discussions with people. That's a great kind of, I think, point to focus the summary on because we, at the end of the day, to me, when I think of development, when I think of coaching, you're still talking about learning. You're still talking about driving toward a goal. And that's where you, at least in my background, I feel really comfortable using the word intelligent. It's a really complicated topic. But if you're speaking on, okay, how can I, how can I accomplish this goal as best as possible? How can I win as a basketball team by scoring more points than the other team? How can I improve my shot as a player? Um, how can I get guys some things I hear coaches talk about when they come on your show? How can I get guys to buy into an extra rotation or the second back cut or whatever it is, right? If you can align kind of with that principle in mind, then why would you, you started with the fluff, right? Like, why would you have all this extra fluff of um, performative theater, yelling at guys, only only doing it one way? I mean, I don't know what it's like still in high school, but when I was playing high school basketball in the 90s, it was like you had a coach and then you had sort of the hard-ass meter, right? It was just like, he's yep, a, yep. Uh, you were so lucky he's a six. We're very happy about this. <laughs> and it was just practice was kind of almost always tuned to that knob and that's how it was i don't know if it's still like that i don't know if you can speak to that level um but certainly i just think seeing these mindsets change and evolve 
uh, they're all part of sort of optimizing basketball, if you will. Yeah, it's great. I'm glad we're having this because Ronald Norad came on my podcast. He's an assistant coach now with the Indiana Pacers, but was with Charlotte at the time. And he said this phrasing. And I know a lot of people took it out of context unless they listened to it. But he said, we should coach every player at all ages like they're an NBA player. And, And his point being is that we can't talk to NBA players the way we talk to youth players or college players. And the point is, well, why would we? You know, and I think to a certain extent, it comes back to things like this. Ben, where people really have to think deeply. Do you explain to a player, for example, what positive feedback means? And I think we're all scared to be positive because we associate it with, oh, now you're going to be complacent. Well, and that speaks back to this whole other issue, which is what's the difference between performance and development? And we know there's a huge difference in terms of how you practice for development and how you practice for a player to just purely perform. And that comfort and confidence that's Mm, necessary to play a game versus that mistakes are okay, psychological safe environment to develop. And those are two very different distinctions that, uh, you know, is also, I think, associated with modern coaches is really diving deep and explaining, hey, when you're positive or when I'm positive to you as an athlete, what I'm saying is replicate this, keep doing this. And then also saying that if you're perfect, you already can do it. So that's great. We want to have perfect reps to build your confidence confidence and comfort for a game. But for development, it's not my job as a coach to have you do any perfect reps because I'm trying to get you to reach beyond your level. And that type of learning language and all that different stuff that comes with it is another huge part for me that I try and share with coaches is we should all be using learning language. If we want them to learn, let's use learning language. Yeah, and I think his point, the way I took it was – kind of it had two big parts one was about in that context of when he was mentioning it he was talking about respect and kind of what you can get away with at lower levels that you just it just doesn't fly with professionals especially when those professionals make more money than you and are kind of the star of the show if you will you're much lower on the marquee he, he kind of mentions the I, I laughed out loud he kind of mentions when when you go to the college game the coach is introduced last and it's a big deal and when you go to the nba <laughs> game um i always remember ray clay the PA announcer of the Bulls at their heyday with Jordan and Pippen, they had one of the sort of most um, theatrical starting lineups that you could get back in the NBA on NBC days. And at the end of it, they get to Michael Jordan and he goes, you know, he does the hand hand from North Carolina. You know, the crowd goes crazy. The lights are going crazy. The laser <laughs> shows going crazy. And then the lights come back up and everyone gets calm and they throw it back to the broadcasters and you hear under his breath, and the Bulls are coached by Phil Jackson. <laughs> it's just like, and nobody cheers. No, it's just, and the Bulls are coached by Phil Jackson. Um, and so that was kind of his point, right, about what yeah. you can get away with when when the hierarchy is different. Uh, but along with the respect, I think you mentioned it. There's this element of optimizing communication, and sometimes I wonder. I don't know how you feel about this. I'm curious. Sometimes I wonder if. The thought is, if you're positive, and you use the word stoic, another great word here, if you're positive and stoic, then culturally something's off, right? Like you're too soft, or you don't Mm -hmm. care enough to get red in the face or something. I mean, is is that a resistance that you feel exists? A hundred percent. And that's, it's a resistance is the right word, but also fear, a fear. If we don't do this, then everything's going to go 
you know, awry and that, that type of thing. So I really try and connect it for, for, for coaches to understand is obviously we can all say this, be yourself. Well, be yourself. Well, that's easy to say, but sometimes in coaching, you can't be yourself to connect with the player that you want. Yeah. Like I remember one of the best connections I made with a player was when I got in a car trying to recruit him, and I just happened to have Dave Matthews on. And it just happened that a 20, you know, 20 year old male happened to like Dale, Dave Matthews. And normally I can guarantee this, Ben, in recruiting, if I ever pick up a kid in the car, I make sure I probably have hip hop or rap or something on. And I just totally forgot. And then suddenly you're making this connection that you're going, okay, this is authentically me. But most of the other time I have to say, well, I really like, you know, hip hop or I really like this because you're trying to develop that relationship. But you're also trying to get something out of that player that they might not normally give you if you aren't open and honest. And I think that is the ultimate part of what you're getting at with that point you made and about modern coaching is we can be different if we're still honest. Right, right. And those conversations don't have to be hard, but those are hard conversations. And in my mind, that's hard coaching. It's not yelling. It's not screaming. It's not throwing balls. That's not hard coaching. Hard coaching is being honest with players. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. Hmm. I, I like that. That's really interesting. And and my brain is going to how diverse the sport has become. And how international the sport has become. Um, I think at this point, I, I could check certain analytic numbers, but at least half of my audience is international. And so just this idea that you're all going to have the exact same background and the exact same experiences. And that, you know, you hear, you hear terms in the NBA like he's a player's coach. And usually that's a guy that used to be a player that has a lot of relationships. Maybe he had some quick tours on the bench as an assistant and he's, he's not that classic old school head coach in the hierarchy. He connects with the players and then he becomes a coach that way. And I think that that path is great. There's nothing wrong with that. And that's a path that's going to potentially get you to a more similar background to guys that are closer to your age, closer to your age and closer to your experience levels. But to your point, Chris, like, you're not always going to get that, especially as the sport diversifies. And we've got guys from different countries, different backgrounds, different ages. I mean, it's it's a challenge as you get older in life to have the exact same experiences as an 18 or 20 or even 23-year-old. So there's always going to be some bending in there. And maybe back to the larger point, that bending is the, is the new thing that's going to help optimize that communication, the trust, the relationship, and then you can work on development into performance. Yeah, flexibility and everything that goes with that for sure. And, uh, you know, you, you brought up the international part of this. And I do think the smart organizations, the smart teams, if I'm just speaking about college and NBA, are starting to really diversify their staffs with 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 obviously international presence the raptors are a great example where they're bringing in trevor gleason you know from the perth wildcats as an assistant just as scarlarly leaves to go to uh back to europe like they're always want that kind of 
outside the box presence. And I think the smart teams are doing that. And you look at Chris Mack at Louisville, you know, where he hires someone like Ross McMains and just go, okay, this guy is thinking differently and going, what can help my team? And too often, I think at so many levels with the NBA's figure this out, but at so many other levels, we haven't figured out that yes, we can recruit better players. Yes, we can, you know, get better players. But the most important thing is, can we develop those players? Player development solves a lot of problems. And the NBA, I said, has probably gone in all in on player development more than any other sports league, I imagine, just in that sense, that they know the value of that. And you've naturally segued us into the into the topic that I really wanted to get to today. The, <laughs> the one thing that I, I told you right before we started recording that, you know, when I think of Chris's work, like this is the thing that's actually jumped out to me over the years. And that is this idea of the the international diversity of the game and all the leagues and all the success in these leagues. And when I go look at all your X's and O's and these plays you diagram so beautifully on Twitter, it strikes me that a lot of the innovation, a lot of the push forward that we've seen bubble up to the NBA and maybe even high-level college comes from, to a certain degree, lower levels, or or that's kind of a disparaging term, but other leagues around the world, right? And then all of a sudden, everyone in the NBA is running Spain pick and roll with a bunch of variants, things like that. That that seems to be the pattern to me. But you know, do you, do you buy into that idea? Is that something that you yep. you think that's true yeah so instead of lower levels let's let's change the narrative to say less perfect rosters sure yeah. right because i really think that's the narrative that you're you're saying yep. and i 100 percent agree with is that coaches at different levels and myself like i think about myself coming up as a young coach in canada i got to coach as many teams as possible didn't have ncaa rules restricting me so i got a chance to experiment i got a chance to throw stuff at the wall and say hey that really works this doesn't work. And I also got to learn that this works for this team and that doesn't work for the next team just because you change one player. So all of that kind of roster imperfection causes you as a coach, I believe, to try more things and to get outside of, say, these traditional uh, paradigms of how you run a team. And that's where you see these lower leagues, uh, wherever it is. I mean, I'd say one of the most underrated leagues is you look at, say, Korea or Japan. And we saw that with the Japanese team in the Olympics for the women. And you just say, yeah, like they, they, okay, what are their realities? And I say that not as saying, okay, these aren't weaknesses. These are the realities. They just don't have a lot of size. Right. So they have to figure out how to play differently. And that's where it's going to be curious. And I know you and I probably share this view. Curious watching a Houston this year, like where essentially it's such a young roster you know, and go, okay, does that give them a unique opportunity to really try some stuff, knowing that they're not going to win to really put their players in future success? And that, that'll be a curiosity rather than just duplicating what's been done in the past by other NBA teams. I hope so. I mean, I think part of part of sort of the hypothesis that I'm throwing out there is that the NBA is the place where you're less likely to see that, even with some of these teams that... Um, you know, to, to go back to the point you made about you have more limitations on your roster, so that forces you to think more creatively. I, I mean, if you can't run elbow offense or certain isolations or whatever for a guy who can get you traditionally 25 points a game, you got to think of different ways to do it. I hope a team like Houston would experiment. I, I'm thinking now back to um, Don Nelson when he was with the Mavs 
it some season in the 90s you know the the dallas was horrible in the 90s they were the the brunt of many jokes and one year he's just like we're gonna shoot a ton of threes and you know whether how much they overperformed because of it i don't know but this was at a time when the three-point shot hadn't truly taken off and he didn't have a lot of talent on the roster but he said nelson was always a mad scientist right and he said hey why don't I try to make up some of this gap by playing skilled players that can shoot? Sure, we don't have a lot of other areas. They're not great isolation scorers. We won't be a great defensive team, but there's math in the three-point shot. And if you go back and find the season, I want to say off the top of my head, it's like 97 or something like that. They shoot way more threes than the next closest team. Still didn't do too too well, but it's the kind of thing that jumps out to me because I think we're less likely to see that in the NBA than at other levels. And then when it successfully takes off at other levels, then it, then it can trickle up safely. It's, it, it's a hundred percent true. It's got to happen. Like if we think about, here's a example that a lot of coaches, the coaches coaches are thinking about nowadays is this next ball screen coverage on defense, which is essentially you're running, jumping the handler comes off the ball screen, a player one pass away rather than the defender covering the screener, runs and jumps and disrupts the handler coming off the screen. And then it's kind of a rotation like you would imagine in the full court in terms of running and jumping. Well, I'll tell you, maybe someone in the NBA thought of that, but to do that at the NBA level is to show that you are an outlier. And if you are an outlier at, say, the NCAA college game, the uh, NBA game, you're an outlier and it doesn't work then you are the one that is held accountable solely because right. you did something completely different. Yeah. So by nature, to protect these jobs, which I don't blame any coach, you're getting, someone's paying you a lot of money to coach, protect your job. But there's less incentive to be different because if I'm different, then I look like I'm different and then I'm the one that obviously gets blamed. And that's where we're saying innovation happens at these less perfect roster levels right and i think i think psychologically we're speaking to risk aversion which is Mm -hmm. you know you've you've got something that's a little more solidified both in terms of your finances your stature you're kind of at the top of the heap as a coach and then everything we talked about earlier in the show with your relationship with the players right so you're asking sometimes those players to do things that they may not buy into or they themselves may want to aspire toward, you know, everyone wants to be the next Kevin Durant, the next, you know, hey, coach, let me develop uh, my step back three so I can be more like James Harden or whatever it is. And all of that means you're just kind of in a in a place where risk aversion is going to push you away from those decisions versus, uh, I mean, in my limited experience talking to coaches who have coached in leagues like Australia or Israel, the, the and those are they've got great leagues in these places that I don't think people realize how much how many recognizable names are on the rosters. Let's put it that way, but you know they can't they can't run stuff that you would run for a Dirk Nowitzki centered offense or a Kevin Durant centered offense, and so it gives them more freedom they, to take those risks. And all of a sudden, the things that work are the things that kind of trickle up. That's my working theory, at least. So I agree with this. Uh, and, and and if you want to think about it this way, you can say, okay, we didn't like James Harden isolating, you know, but. You know, to me, it's like the, the most common sense, simplest offense in the world is the one where I have a player who can create an advantage. And from that advantage, either they're going to score or they're going to draw help and create an advantage for someone else and keep the dominoes falling, so to speak. So to me, it's just like part of the struggle of the NBA, too, is 
the players are just so damn you, good. You have those players. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like I'm like, I'm kind of dumb if I try and be super creative when I just have someone that can create an advantage. And at the less perfect roster levels, you have to do more false motion. You have to do more kind of creativity to be able to create those initial advantages just simply because your roster doesn't have some of these traditional profiles that you might see at the NBA. Yeah. And what I get jazzed up for and even just, you know, reviewing like the finals film and and Monty Williams as a coach, I thought his X's and O's have been um, really nice for a while, but he, he gets this roster where the talent continues to develop, and then they add players. They add Chris Paul. They add Jay Crowder. Mikhail develops. Obviously, Devin Booker continues to develop. And now you're seeing, okay, when I, when I can incorporate some of these other things that we're talking about that help players get advantages, help put defenses in rotation or in scramble mode when they're lesser players, how do I bake them in with the guys who are super skilled? And then, hey, how are you going to defend that? Yeah, well, there's the art of coaching, right? Like, it's 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 not as easy as people think. And there's another rant against a media portrayal. Like, how many times we listen to different podcasts during the playoffs and people are are saying, oh, just didn't make any adjustments, didn't do any adjustments. I'm like, come on. Like, I, I, I've had conversations with NBA head coaches. I've had conversations with the, the 20th person in the video room, whatever you want to say. And every one of those conversations, I leave humbled knowing that these people spend their whole day with the most resources possible and the mo- most opportunity to deeply study the game. And that that conversation with that video coordinator is like earth shattering to me, like the stuff they say and the stuff they come out with. But they're also all smart enough to know. But you know what the bottom line is? We have to keep it simple because we have the best players in the world. And why would we complicate simple with the best players in the world? And that's where you also see this. You call it risk averse somewhat. And I agree. But I think mostly it's just smart coaching. Mm. Right. It's just smart coaching. And can I throw another example out? Of course, this is yeah. not a knock on any Krzyzewski assistance. But you look at the difference between being Mike Krzyzewski at Duke and the talent level he draws from. And being a coach on his staff that really learns the game, obviously, from Coach Krzyzewski. But then he goes off and runs his own program with less talent. And now all of a sudden, okay, well, I'm just going to do what Krzyzewski did, technically, tactically, because it worked at Duke. Well, again, it worked with a different profile player. And I know these coaches are smart enough to know the difference, but it is really hard to get outside of what you know and to do something, you know, to change a known good for a potential unknown better is really, really, really brave and hard for a lot of coaches to do. Yeah, I, and I don't want to detour us too much here, but you're yep. you're making us land on a topic that I've thought about <laughs> a lot over the years, which is how hard it is to evaluate a coach given the limited information we have from the outside. Even even when you go hardcore and you and you know their playbook inside and out, you still don't have the full picture of sort of quote unquote evaluating them as a coach and the thing that 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 Krzyzewski example made me think of is how we almost never there are some exceptions but we almost never credit coaches for coaching really really well unless their team has a really good record and it's like I I find that very hard to be true I think there's probably been phenomenal coaching jobs on NBA teams that have won like 30 games, on college teams that are suddenly 500, you know, instead of 7 and 27 or whatever it is. But 
winning is the bottom line and it drives everything. And so because the coaching thing is so hard to see anyway, because so many people watch a playoff game and don't realize that the adjustments were subtle, like every NBA team is making trying to make adjustments after games in, in playoffs. But most of the time they're subtle. And most of the time, they don't have to be grand. And so even just extrapolating out to colleges, right? Like, you can go from some program, you can go from the the bench at Duke to a smaller program. And you've had guests on your show have taken these programs, right? When they got there, the program was really poor. And and, and this happened with Krzyzewski as well. And 10 years later, it's good. It happened with uh, Greg Popovich going through Pomona and all this. Like, the, the intermittent period, that's where it's really hard to see, right? Oh, they're 16 and 14 this year. But in reality, it's still the same coach. He's still learning. He's still growing. He's, he's doing all this amazing stuff, but it's just so hard to evaluate. So as I said, I don't want to detour us too much. We can go down this road as much as you, as many thoughts as you have. I'd love to hear them. But just this idea of how hard it is to judge coaches, especially at the highest level, and then how muddled that gets with when the team doesn't have an 800 winning percentage or something. Well, the simple the simple difference is talk to a coach and ask him, like, who he thinks the most improved teamers or the best coach team is, and et cetera, like that. And I would say coaches generally remove that bias of record and wins, and really appreciate, especially if you're asking someone, say, in my conference, or you're asking an NBA coach, someone about their conference, they truly appreciate the depth of coaching that goes into even a losing team. Right. And a losing team can be incredibly well coached. Yep. And I think yep. we'll see that, you know, we have seen that and we'll see that every year from now on at every level of basketball. But I just think people can't get outside of the win loss to be able to evaluate. And I always give the analogy, which I think is a fun one. And I wish I could tell this to all my daughter's teachers, but it's like, OK, how come your how come my daughter's test results aren't posted in the newspaper the next day? <laughs> like, really, like to me, I mean, if I truly want to hold you accountable as a teacher. You know, and teachers are getting crapped on enough. I love teachers, so I don't want this to portray that. But it's just an example. Okay, your doctor, Ben, is is his win-loss record in the paper the next day? Because I would really like to know his loss record, right? <laughs> but coaching is different, and now everyone's an expert, and everyone can portray it. And uh, NBA Twitter, obviously, is amazing. But at the same time, it's frustrating somewhat because I think we jump to conclusions sometimes and without truly understanding the depth that goes into the coaching process. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, no, that's that's such a great point about the sort of visibility of everything. I think for for many of the more fanatical fans that that can be lost, of course, in the big picture. Uh, but it goes back to what we were talking about with 
communicating with players and sort of the the human real life sensitivity of this stuff that especially on a show like mine where I spend so much time analyzing and trying to unpack the efficacy of the teams and the players on the court but there's still this human psychological level that you can't separate from that and it just always cracks me up it's like we are literally putting their jobs under a microscope and so few people ever have to experience that and so yeah when you talk about accountability um (laughs) that that would be very interesting to have to have all of our sort of performances graded in the paper the next day (laughs) yeah isn't that something like how does that change your perspective you know and i know that as coaches like it changes a lot of what you do you know and eventually you get to the point like i think all humans get to that point hopefully in their life where you know you quit worrying about what other people think of you and you know you that's an important transition just as a human being but as a coach it's it's a little bit harder because so many people just believe the narrative of you did well if you won and you didn't if you lost and to be able to, and I, I connect it for a lot of people with decision-making, I just say, can you evaluate the outcome, right? Can you evaluate the outcome, you know, based solely on the decision and not whether or not, say, the ball went in for talking on offense. And decision-making, by and large, needs to be evaluated independent of outcome because you can make the right decision and still not make the shot. And that's what's really hard, I think, for people is like, it's just really simple. The ball went in or it didn't go in. And uh, to evaluate a coach beyond that requires great depth and understanding, which, to be honest, Ben and you and I have some really good inside knowledge, but we're we have nowhere the knowledge necessary to really, truly evaluate a coach unless we're spending multiple, multiple days and years probably with them. Yeah. And even then, from a scientific perspective, I think one of the things that makes evaluating coaching so hard is there's no direct signal. So you you can you can go hang out you can go hang out it with a team right for days or weeks yeah. and get some of that behind the scenes insight that we don't have and now you've got a more robust data pool in your head to evaluate from but like good luck coming up with the counterfactual or figuring out if this other thing would have actually worked or um, you know figuring out the two years prior he had a player and the development track or even the the playing time and tactics that coach took with that player and if that was the right move and it's it's just you know getting the players and the teams is hard enough for me so I try try not to go (laughs) I try not to get too granular with NBA I've got three levels of NBA coaches Chris it's it's I think you're really good I think you're kind of neutral and in the middle and now there just aren't that many that I think are are sort of problematic in terms of their effect they seem to go to teams and not have a a positive effect most i feel like it goes back to new coaching maybe a lot of those coaches i feel back in the 90s like it was like you go back and and do some of the historical projects um that i did and i think you'll probably have the same perspective you'll be like what how is that guy still in the league like his teams are constantly underperforming he's doing these weird things he leaves the team someone else comes in everything gets better well and i can say this like i'll solve this for everyone Coaching is really good, and it's way better than it ever has been at all levels of basketball. And I would imagine at all levels of sport, we're just smarter. We just have so many more tools to be better at what we do. And I do believe that the NBA is reflecting that, especially with a lot of the new hires over the last two years, which is, again, okay, we don't need this traditional coach You know, we can go with someone who's played and then after their playing career, they devoted 
incredible time to learn the game from a coaching perspective. And I think that's sometimes discounted as well as like we just say, okay, all these former players are getting hired. But look at the amount of time these former players put into the game. And that's really hard. Like think about you and I making millions of dollars and then retiring and saying, you know what? We're going to just put our whole next 20 years of our life into learning how to cope. And that's incredible and admirable. So I definitely don't blame anyone for hiring one of these former players that have put time into learning the game. This sounds pretty good. Can we continue this fantasy? You were saying we're going to make millions of dollars. And then <laughs> I know. Um, Wouldn't that be a good problem to, like, to decide, okay, now what, what am I going to do next? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I think even in that bucket, you can even in that sort of uh, example you brought up, there's two buckets. You could say there are coaches that are getting hired – uh, and I happen to think that he did a pretty good job this year where Steve Nash and he did some development work and some consulting work with the Warriors and things like that. But in Manhattan Beach, one I went to Manhattan Beach for dinner like three times in a row in a month. And I saw Steve Nash there all three times and he was enjoying life. He was running on the beach. I think he was surfing. Um, he was he was having enjoy like fantastic food in the evening as the sunset over the ocean. And for him to then say, oh, I'm going to go put in this work and do something else. I think that's one type of uh, former player into a coach, right? Like a very quick transition. A lot of the guys you're talking about, um, they go through a number of jobs. They get the job maybe because of their experience as a player, because of their name and their cachet. But uh, so many, I mean, heck, so many of the guests you've had on your show, I got to I gotta do a double take when they start talking about their resumes. I'm like, uh, coached, coached here in college, coached this other college, then was an assistant here, went back to a head coach here, then is an assistant here. Um, you know, you mentioned, um, uh, now I'm blanking on his name from Butler. We just talked about him earlier. Ronald Norris. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You mentioned him. And when you recorded that show, I think he was with Charlotte and now he's with Indiana. So it's this kind of, like huge progression where guys are leaving the game at whatever age in his case after college in his early 20s but for many pros it's in their 30s and then they're putting in five or ten years uh you know of this learning it from that perspective to get those jobs i think that's very different than um even someone like larry bird you know three years on the bench in indiana he kind of just sat around and then was like i'll try coaching so, you know, it's 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 great. Like the Nash example is an outlier, right? Like that's an outlier, I think, nowadays. And think about this. Like, you, you know, the billionaires that are owning these sports teams are really smart. So it's like, how are you presenting yourself? And I think that's what Sean threw on the podcast for me, too. When I talk to some of these coaches and I just see how well they have focused on their language, their phrasing, you know, they're just they're understanding that eventually they're going to be selling themselves to a tech billionaire or something like that to say, you're going to run my organization and how different that is than say 10, 20 years ago as well. And that type of influence. And uh, it's almost a disservice to these coaches that we call them former players like mm -hmm. Nash. Yeah. He was a former player that transitioned into coaching, but I think all these other guys you want to think about, like how long have they been assistants or how long have they been working, you know, to get their next or their opportunity or their next job and just to stay in the NBA. And uh, I think that's another part that people from the outside don't understand is how hard it is to stay in the NBA as a coach with all these staff turnovers. So why do you think, uh, is, it, is it technology? Is it money? What do you think has sort of continuously driven coaches forward in, in being, being 
kind of better than they were years ago, the improvements that we've been talking about? What is it? Well, let's pat ourselves on the back here, Ben. Like it's let's I, just I won't break take down. credit. You you yeah, can take credit. Yeah. No, but let's just simply say, how about a podcast like yours or mine that gets beyond the fluff and gets to real conversation? Mm. Right. Like if it's it, this is a simple example and we didn't revolutionize the game. I know that. But we are contributing to it. And the coaches, most importantly, that are our guests or people that are our guests are contributing to it because they are pulling back the curtain and telling us real things. And I think 20 years ago, I know when I used to go to these Nike coaching clinics and stuff like that. And I know coaches had their set routine. It was almost like they're. You know, their comedy hour, they're going up there and they're telling you the stories and they're doing all this other stuff. And then they're not really sharing what they authentically do. And I believe that's a huge change that's made us all smarter is this openness of sharing uh, the less judgment when it comes to evaluating what people are doing. And then just you said the technology part, like, how could you not like if if you and I got to sit on second spectrum for a day? Like, let alone, like, these people get full-time jobs now where they're on second spectrum. So beyond day, our synergy, yeah. Yeah. all day. So beyond synergy and the detail and the look and, you know, they could spend a month. That's the other part I say about the NBA coaches. It's like an assistant can spend a week, a month on one detail on one project. And I'm like, how are we not smarter when we have people like that to do those things? That's great insight. And probably it's all of that. And and to your point, maybe or maybe the flip side of the coin is, you know, credit credit to those people. Um, I know when I started my podcast, I was kind of blown away at the the people on the inside who reached out, who were like, "Oh, I never thought about this topic," or "Tell me more about this." We want to we do something similar, but I want to I want to pick your brain about it, and just sort of the eagerness and curiosity to learn in conjunction with an environment where now. You know, it, it's still not superly well formed, but the internet has developed this really rich ecosystem of kind of like self learning of places you can go deep on topics that you can never talk about before. Well, YouTube, right? It's made every kid the smartest kid in the room if they want to be. Now, you still got to put the effort in, you still got to learn and devote your time staring to learn or obviously focusing on what you're watching. But man, you and I, Ben, we can teach ourselves anything from YouTube. Just think about that, like how powerful it is when in the past, say 20 years ago, we had to hire someone, you know, where we had to seek out someone. And it's like now we can just teach ourselves relatively quickly different things. So um, it, it, it's it's the most powerful learning generation. And obviously, it's not going to change in the immediate future. And they, there's another thing. I know that's a rabbit hole, but generalizations and getting into this. Mm, yep. And I think I, I, I don't know, like there's too many still, you know, color analysts that I think are stuck in the past when they talk about basketball, which also contributes to this narrative of the game not being as good as it used to be. I'm like, what do you mean? It's, not, it's incredibly better than it has ever been. You can still have a preference of the past, but to say that the game is not better is just, you know, you're just not watching and you're stuck in the past and you're stuck in a biased you know, that is not a recency biased <laughs> at all. Yeah, we, we, we see that nostalgia bias in, in many, many things yeah. back in my day. And that's fine. You know, we're all going to have different preferences for different styles. And I know someone I used to work with, um, he, he once proudly proclaimed that he stopped watching basketball in the 90s because he loved the 80s and he loved he loved the Magic Bird rivalry and he's like he's like nowadays it's it's not the same uh and it's true it's not the same 
and aesthetically it's very different. But I have so many people ask me questions about all-time comparisons, all-time leagues. You know, uh, people love to do these drafts where they draft players from all time and then sort of simulate how they think the games would go. And to the point we're on here, my simple question is, well, do, do they get today's knowledge or not? Because if they don't have today's knowledge, they're cooked. And it's and you, I think you, it's, you nailed it. You nailed it. That's I, it. Like, I, why are we having these conversations unless we're saying these? T- OK, as a coach, who's a better coach? Well, Ben, you take the exact same team I have and we play each other. That's the only way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we can't do that, can we? No, we can't. And so, um, you know, I have no problem with I, I think those kinds of thought experiments are very fun. But that. Yeah. The the sport has become so much more efficient in its tactics and its strategies on offense and defense that you can't do it without normalizing. You can't actually because if you take like one of the best teams I ever saw, uh, both live and in my historical studies, the Chicago Bulls in 96 and phenomenal rebounding team, great passing team, great defensive team. Obviously, uh, Jordan, Pippen, Kukoc, you can play stretch five, Kerr. Uh, if you want to space the floor and get a shooter next to those guys, you put Kerr in. If you want a lockdown defender, you put Randy Brown in. Like just, just a phenomenal team, right? If you had them play the 2017 Warriors and you did not give them the credit like you did not download them with the information of the way the game was played today, it would be like 70 to 40 at halftime. Agreed. <laughs> Just, yeah. Agreed. Yeah. And I think that's kind of uh, part and parcel to what we're talking about today with coaching and strategies and things like that. All right. I don't know if we got to any of the topics that I, I didn't really want to get to any topics. I wanted to just roll the dice that's like good. this and flow. Um, before I let you get out of here, let me let me circle back. You mentioned Mike Krzyzewski. I'm curious. Have you ever seen these old videos that the coaches used to put out? Did you watch these back in the day? Like, they're on YouTube yep. now. You know what I'm talking about? This, yep. The little, yep. the one hour, I guess his is like multiple parts, but um, I think that one from Krzyzewski that I'm thinking of, Christian Leitner was in a ton of the videos and based on the roster, I want to say it was like 89, 91, yep. something like that. Yeah. Well, these old VHS tapes, uh, these old DVDs, that's how coaches used to learn. And it's true. Like you'd go on, you'd order them and they'd send them to you. And it's honestly the reason I started and basketball immersion was always in the back of my mind was I always felt cheated, maybe a strong word, but I always felt like I'm buying this and they're not really sharing anything like that. I couldn't learn on my own type of thing. Hmm. And that was a frustration. And it was like, again, here's another thing is that coaching is definitely has a celebrity bias, right? We have a bias towards a celebrity coach. And the celebrity coach has been successful. They've got paid incredibly well and all that stuff. But I think that's what we, yeah, all that. (laughs) But I think what we've gone through in this podcast is they aren't necessarily the best coaches to learn from because they've kind of functioned at this level where we can't relate, we can't understand. And it's like Calipari is a CEO as much as he is a coach. Yeah, Yeah. And to sit here and knock his coaching is really unfair to what his job is which is not always coaching <laughs> and he does all of it incredibly well and incredibly high level. So that's a, that's another part to all this is that uh, when I think about those DVDs and those videos, like I felt like I wasn't getting their best. And I do believe that's what's happening now with basketball immersion stuff, with your stuff, 
uh, with just generally YouTube, more of these clinics is coaches are more authentically sharing what they do uh, because they want to contribute to the narrative of development and improvement rather than just their celebrity. And uh, I don't begrudge anyone for trying to make money and sharing you know, what they have for, you know, monetary reasons. In fact, I think coaches should protect their IP even more somewhat and value it even more, especially if it's unique and proprietary. But generally, I would say people are sharing more authentically, uh, you know, and peel switching like, you know, y- you know, there's an example that now that's a p- all a part of our whole narrative, this word of peel switching. And it's like, where did that come from? Yeah, where did you that know, come where from? Where did that ultimately come? It came from Will Voigt who popularized it. I don't know if he made it up, but he popularized it. And where Mm. was he coaching? He was coaching like the Nigerian national team. You know, it's like, and he's got NBA and G League experience going back. So he's obviously a successful coach, but like he's created this narrative of this word that now is across our lexicon. And that's pretty cool. But he had to figure something out different because how was he covering differently and helping his team be successful? Do you think that coaches maybe 20 years ago, didn't have to be as iterative, progressive. Um, we're talking about, you know, ingesting knowledge and studying the landscape and staying up to date with things with the technology. It seems to me, and, you know, I haven't thought too much about this, so I'm not going, I'm not, I'm not betting the farm on it, but it seems to me that you could be a little bit more static and have that legacy, even your system, like the, the offensive and defensive principles that you have, they could stick around for decades, especially if you had a really successful college program. And now it feels like, there's only so much this celebrity coaching status can kind of um, get you at this point in time. You're either going to get take, taken, you know, the, the field will catch up to you and pass you a little bit, or it will completely engulf you and you'll be out. Is that kind of a fair? Do you have a similar impression or um, do you think I'm off base there? I'm just thinking of no, this I, off the top yeah, of my head. No, I, yeah, I think you're on base. I think just generally players are smarter and we've empowered players more. And both of those are really good things, but that just means that, Coaches are definitely in the spotlight a lot more because of social media and everything like that. But also because like and that's where all these conspiracies at any level of life in the world is just kind of astounds me somewhat to think that there's someone smart enough to be able to truly execute a lot of these conspiracies is the same as akin to like, okay, can a coach really hide who they are at this point? Like, can they really keep? their fiefdom so close that word never gets out about how they actually are. And that's been positive. That's held coaches accountable to change and to be different. And even a hard, hard coach by old school definitions has has to change if they want to preserve their job. And doesn't job preservation and coaching kind of supersede everything. Like that's what we've talked about. Job preservation in the NBA and NCAA game are about keeping your job. So just keep going with the status quo, Mm. plug players into your system, don't change too much because it's working. Whereas at, as we said, the imperfect roster levels, it's like job preservation is all about, I got to try this shit because if it doesn't work, I'm fired. Yeah. So I'm going to try it and I'm not going to hold anything back. And that's really the bottom line is it's all about job preservation as it should be. I think the only natural thing to do now, Chris, is for you to give me your top 30 NBA coaches in perfect order. Uh, and then be held accountable for them for the rest of time. Does that, does that sound, doesn't yeah, that sound reasonable? 
Yeah, you know what? And I would never do that. And I get asked like, "Oh, what's your favorite team?" It's for I mean, my favorite. Like I say, same thing. And I say this to players all the time nowadays. I say, if somebody asks you what your position is, and I'll go around with like a youth camp, and kids will say, "Oh, I'm a five, or I'm a post, or I'm a guard, or a point guard." I just say, "Okay, listen. My dream for all of you is that you answer all this and say, I'm a basketball player. That's your answer. You're a basketball player. It's the coach's job to put you in the situation where you're going to help the team best." But for you as a player and from a development standpoint is become the best version possible of what will help you continue to enjoy the game and succeed in the game if you're moving up to that collegiate slash professional level. Yeah. And, And, uh, you know, that applies for us, too. Like if we're evaluating a coach, I mean, like, geez, you know, (laughs) I I know a lot of coaches that lost but did a really good job. But there's definitely a part of all evaluation that has to go with longevity, right? Success over time. And uh, that's been remarkable, I think, to be able to watch in the NBA when you think about the Spolstras and the, you know, the Popoviches and different guys like that. They've they've adjusted through all these generations. It's amazing. That yeah. is amazing. You know, go, doing the historical stuff, that's sometimes what jumps out to me is the, oh my God, they're, everything looks totally different. Their offensive system, their personnel they're putting out there, a decade ago it was totally different, and yet they're still at the top of the game. That's incredible. And, and you know, you hit back on generalization versus yep. specialization. Um, we can talk about it in any walk of life. We can talk about it as analysts or as podcasters and video creators and content creators, but just the players... It seems I, I sometimes think about the the young sport of mixed martial arts, which when it started was just a bunch of specializations. Mm-hmm. That's essentially all it was. You had a wrestler and you had a boxer and you had a kickboxer and you had a jujitsu guy. And the thinking was back when back, you know, back in the day, at least in the UFC was what happens if we put them together, which specialization would win. And I think what people quickly realized is, well, if you want to win, you better be generalizable, right? You better have multiple skills. And the NBA, what you just described, what I've talked about with other people, what I think we're seeing, and maybe all levels of basketball is stop taking a tall guy and telling him to work on his mic and drills, stop taking a guard and having him focus only on his crossover and his pull up and start generalizing all these skills across different bodies, different talents, different heights. And no, that doesn't mean that you can't get your unicorns. That doesn't mean that you can't get guys that play differently. That's not what I think that's about at all. It's just more about if you only bring one specialized sort of skill set to the table, you're not going to have the diversity and the generalizability that the sport literally requires, regardless of the vocabulary we use to describe it. Skill equals confidence. Like get as skilled as you can as a player because it gives you confidence that you have to come back to learning language, that you have a solution to any problem you have. And think about that. And now it's my coach's job to tell me to focus on just these skills that will help the team best. But for me as a player, I want to get as skilled and as, as you said, generalized as possible because I just have more solutions. And that simply makes sense. And we see that all the time. You think about it, you know, back this old narrative that certain players didn't dribble the ball. Well, if you're thinking that, then you are not watching the game and how players are playing now. Because every player should be able to dribble the ball. Every player should be able to pass with one hand. Every player should be able to have solutions at the rim relative to their realities, tall, short, wide, whatever. And, you know, if we're not 
creating that environment for that to be shaped for a player, then I don't feel we're doing our best as coaches to be able to help players develop not just skill, but confidence in those skills. And then, as I said, solutions to any problem. And to be honest, what drives innovation is how good players have got, right? On offense, on defense, how good they are. Think about trying to score against some of these teams at the collegiate level. And it's just like a mind-boggling experience to go, okay, Kentucky rolls out like 6'8", 6'9", 6'6", swings, all this stuff, and go, we got to score in collegiate rules. Yeah, that's hard. <laughs> that's really hard. And I think that's the case, too, is that uh, you know so much of this offensive innovation has been driven by how good defense has got. Yeah. Hundred percent. No, I feel like we could we could talk about this all day, um, Chris. Mm-hmm. Now is the time to plug your extensive kind of whatever you want people to look at, focus on. Um, now's the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, you know, I, I'm here to share, not sell. But uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. I mean, basketballimmersion.com is where to go for our brand, and the basketball podcast is there as well. And uh, you know, just grateful to be able to work with that, people like Alex Sarama and different people like that to be able to share the game and uh, to share really ideas about how to coach more than just what to coach. And uh, we do both and we do it all. And it's just been fun. But uh, for me, the, the 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 incredible benefit of all of this has been to be able to connect with people like you and different people that are really, really asking great questions to be able to think and say, OK, can we do it better? And we're not saying you got to change it all. That's not what we're saying. We're saying, can you do something better? Can you make over something? Can you add to something? Or in some cases, can you remove something? And all those questions have been really fun to be able to ask and to be a part of, you know, from literally coaches from around the world, from the NBA level on down to the youth level. I've been able to have these conversations on air or private, and it's just been an incredible opportunity to be able to share the game as we say and uh grateful for that and uh anyone wants to give this episode a shout out please give ben a shout out and uh at b-ball immersion on twitter as well because that's important and uh you know that's just a real simple way to be able to engage the conversation so hopefully more coaches do that with this conversation too and many of you have asked me about uh tools that i use or ways you can kind of start to uh, expand how you see the game in different perspectives and chris's stuff has always been um, something that i go to for that and all of the things he's talking about coaching perspectives his podcast i mean it always cracks me up when you're listening to your podcast and you've got that ad that says hey coach <laughs> and i'm like how, how dare you presume how dare, how dare you presume i know um, sorry but no it's a it's a this type of content and stuff that you're putting out um it's it's a little more hardcore than the kind of layperson things you see but it's also the kind of stuff that i think drives forward um the way you can think about or see this basically see the game differently uh, from so many different perspectives and i am a huge fan of perspective building in general in life so uh chris i appreciate it thanks so much for taking the time if you want to support this show directly, check out patreon.com slash thinking basketball. We have a bunch of additional content, proprietary stats that update daily, and more. Patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Hope you enjoyed this one. Thanks as always for listening all the way through. And of course, wherever you are, I hope you're having a great day. <laughs>